Hi there, Origin Podcast listeners. Prashant here. Today, I chat with Sam Walder, the co-founder and CEO of an Origin portfolio company called Trala. Trala is a platform that teaches people how to play instruments, starting with the violin. Sam and I chat about his journey from starting Trala in college to going through the Techstars Accelerated program and then raising a few rounds of venture capital in the past few years. We also discussed the challenges he's faced along the way, including building and scaling a team, dealing with COVID-19, and the importance of founder mental health. Sam offers lots of great advice to founders, and it's worth a listen. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Sam. Good afternoon. Hey, Prashant. How are you doing? I am doing well. How are you? Great. Glad to be here. That is awesome. Um, well, thank you for spending the time with us. I know you're very busy and you got a lot of stuff going on, which we'll chat about later. But I thought I'd give you a chance here to introduce yourself in your own words and tell us a little bit about your background and why you started the company that you did, Trala, and how you ended up talking to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm the CEO and co-founder of Trala. We are a technology-powered music education company with the mission to make world-class music education accessible to everyone on earth, not just the folks who can afford to pay $100 an hour to a private teacher. So I'm a violinist. I've been playing since I was four. I learned seven other instruments since, and I also was privileged enough to be able to have a, an early start in STEM. So um, started working in a toxicology lab when I was 16 years old and then got to go to school for computer engineering and violin. So that's kind of the beginnings of Trala. Um, realized that I was pretty good at the violin and it only took me 20 years and cost my parents $80,000 for lessons. So it's that sort of accessibility gap that, that I, I sought to, um, uh, to bridge with Trala. Got it. And you started this business in college, is that right? Yeah, junior year of college. How'd you find the time to do that and start the business with uh, with Vish while you were in school? Yeah, I guess it was some healthy deprioritization of, <laughs> of classes. Okay, good, good. Um, well, so you know, for for people who aren't as familiar, you know, with the with the business, can you talk a little bit about? the technology that goes into making it work, how people can sign up, what it costs, and how you view Trala's kind of vision for the future beyond what maybe the product just does today. Yeah, totally. So the product right now is uh, we have a single product. It's an app that helps teach you the violin from scratch. So we take people from day zero, you know, what is this thing? How do I hold it? What do I call this? And we can bring you to a, a pretty significant level of proficiency just through using this app. Um, so it's kind of like a Duolingo for music. Um, the way it works is we've got two big features. We have movie quality video tutorials with famous violinists. So famous violinists teaching you. And we have signal processing that listens to you play your real instrument and gives you instant feedback on everything you play. So it, it's pedagogical signal processing, which basically means we are we got the microphone on and we listen to you play and we say, hey, you should have been playing this note, but you played this other note. And that's because your wrist is, is probably flat and it should be straight. 
So we can give pretty detailed information about what you're playing and, and how to fix your mistakes. This is a huge improvement upon the normal model because normally you get about 30 minutes of feedback once a week. And then for the rest of the seven days in between lessons, you're kind of SOL. But with Trala, you're actually getting feedback constantly. So it's accelerated learning at its core. And then with the, the video tutorials part, um, it, we call it Hollywood meets Harvard. So it's basically let's, let's make really high quality content with the best educators possible. So for example, one of our teachers is Nune Malik. She plays a, uh, she's played a, a Stradivarius violin. If you wanted to take lessons from Nune, you couldn't, even if you're wildly wealthy. You, you can't access a Carnegie Hall soloist as your teacher, but you can on Trala. So you're basically getting the best of all worlds with Trala. And that's, that's why it's working. Um, as you said, this is just the beginning. You know, we're starting with one instrument uh, just in one language. So what we see is we see a future where you can pick up any instrument and you can do it in a couple clicks. You can even get your instrument on Trala. So we basically take all the 10,000 decisions that you need to make around how to learn an instrument and we we boil that down into maybe three clicks on a website you get your instrument you get lessons and you have a community of people that you're playing with that's the end vision got it so do do music teachers and instructors view this as a threat to kind of the the value that they provide their students and and people they work with or is this something that they actually appreciate because it allows people to kind of practice better on their, on their own. Look, one in two people on earth picks up an instrument. There, there is not anywhere near the capacity of educators to support that population, which is one of the reasons that um, there's been significant race and class issues in, uh, in music education, right? There's a certain population of people who just aren't being serviced right now. So teachers love this. They think if we can bring music education to scale, this is going to raise up an entirely new generation of musicians who would not have existed otherwise, right? We're, we're, we have students, I mean, I talked with a student last week from uh, Lebanon, from Beirut, and he did have a teacher. He's a, actually a six-year-old and his mother I talked with. He had a teacher, but uh, the teacher had to flee the country. Um, she's a refugee. And so she was like the teacher. And so what's the student supposed to do? And this kid is a savant, by the way, Prashant. This kid, he invented his own system of reading sheet music. He, he basically invented his own system of sheet music because nobody would teach him how to read sheet music. And so, I mean, this kid deserves a shot. But in the normal system of music education, he would, he would never be able to bring his talents to light. So, you know, overall, educators love the idea of bridging the accessibility gap. And they, they want to be part of it, too. That's incredible. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, so I, I know you graduated college. You kept working on the business. And if we fast forward a little bit, you went through uh, a Techstars cohort. It was, uh, well, nowadays, it doesn't matter what city you're in. Everything's remote. But it was Techstars Chicago that you went through a couple of years ago. Can you talk a little bit, you know, maybe for some of the founders out there are people who are thinking about starting a business or, or joining one of these accelerators around the country. Talk about, you know, your decision to, to join an accelerator, what your experience was like, what was good, what was bad, what you learned, and then any, any advice, you know, you have on the other side, looking back on your experience. Sure. So there's a lot of accelerators out there and um, 
where we where we were at when we joined TechStars, when we decided to apply, was we had a product. We had maybe 50 to 100 subscribers. So we were making a little bit of money. We weren't making significant progress on the product, however. And there, there were only two of us. So it was just Vish and me. And we didn't see a path towards realizing our mission. So we had this great idea. We had a, a, a pretty basic product that, that barely worked, but we had some people who were enjoying it. And we wanted to basically figure out how to run this as a business and take it from being a little project and just a product and create a business out of it. And for us, Techstars was perfect for that. So we were that, that's exactly the stage we were at. And a lot of the other companies that were in our cohort were fairly similar to that, where they had a product, um, maybe it wasn't doing so great, um, but Techstars helped them kind of take it to the next level. So it was, it was a huge, huge opportunity for us. Got it. And do you, you mentioned at the beginning of your answer, like there's a lot of accelerators out there. Is there, you know, is there a way that you would evaluate the quality and the track record of different ones? Because obviously Techstars has been around for a long time. There are a few others that are very well known. And then there's a lot of new ones. And so how would you think about, you know, if you were a founder today doing it over again, joining one that maybe doesn't have the branding that, that Techstars has? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know if I'm the right person to answer that. I would always just say, look to the founders, right? My, my advice is always just to talk with other founders, whether mm-hmm. you're evaluating a VC, whether you are um, looking to uh, integrate a third-party software, um, whether you're looking to hire somebody, you just talk with the other founders. And so if you're looking and you're seeing these other founders are having bad experiences, then, well, there's your answer. Got it. Okay. Um, so now, you know, if we, if we fast forward a little bit more along this timeline, we seem to be, be going on, you know, after Techstars, you came out of demo day, you raised money. Uh, I think your first call it institutional money or, or venture capital uh, money after, after Techstars. So can you talk a little bit about that fundraising process? And then obviously since then, that was a few years ago, you've raised additional capital. And so I'm curious, you know, what was, what was different between the first and the second time? Um, you know, what did you learn that you kind of applied the second time around? And again, you know, focusing on on advice for founders here, what what would you tell you know first time entrepreneurs that are raising money, uh, maybe for the first time or, or the second time, what they what they should be aware of? Gosh, it's such a complicated subject. I think it's always interesting talking with, um, you know, talking with you, a VC, about fundraising because these are two entirely different um, sides of, of the same coin. Uh, and the, the founders are going to say something entirely different from, from VCs, but in the end, it's both of them working together to create value. So I think something I didn't really understand the first time was how close of a partner um, a VC could be. So, you know, I was, I was basically just looking for capital to accelerate the company, you know? And so I ended up having a lot of conversations with folks um, where it, it never really went anywhere. So I think I wasted a lot of time um, and maybe they weren't that interested in Trala and I wasn't that interested in them. So the second time around, the difference was I, I got to speak with people who, we're legitimately interested in Trala and we're viewing this from a mission perspective. And our investors um, f- from both rounds ended up being very, very interested in the mission. 
right? They weren't investing because of this number, that number. They were investing because they saw this huge opportunity and, and they, they thought that we were the right people to, to go after it. And so, you know, I, I talk with a lot of other founders about the fundraising process. One of, one of my best friends is raising right now, raising a Series A. And I, I think there's some things that never change. Um, but the, it's kind of stupid advice. But the thing that I found to be most helpful is just to be authentic and, and to be who I am. And, you know, if, if somebody uh, likes who I am, then they're going to be very interested. If they don't like who I am, then it's never going to be a productive relationship and we're never going to create value with one another. And so I found that the best conversations and the best partnerships have just come down to the fundamentals of find people who you like and who you could go to with your, your most difficult problems and really view them as partners instead of just viewing them as, as a check. Got it. And if you were, if you had to do anything over again in your fundraising experiences, is there anything you would do differently? Let me just put this one back to you. I mean, you saw me pitch the first time. Like, I'm curious what was going through your mind and what's changed uh, over the year and a half since then. Yeah, I mean, I remember I remember seeing you on stage at that Techstars demo day. And then obviously we had many conversations after that. But I thought your passion for not just the business, actually, it wasn't really passion for the business. It was passion for the vision, right? Which... You know, it's not, I won't say it's rare because a lot of founders, a lot of founders do have that, but it was very authentic and you could tell that you felt it deep in your bones. And then it made a lot of sense when you talked about your background, why, why you would feel so strongly about it and why you felt that technology could really democratize this to, to the points you were making earlier about your vision. And so I think that's, that's what probably was the hook that got us most interested in you and the business and vision, everything else. And I'm sure that was true or something similar to that is true for other investors that you've spoken with is, boy, you know, this is a, this is an early stage business. You guys are still, you know, young founders. I'm sure you don't feel young anymore with all the stress you've gone through in the last few years, but it's true. And, and the, the thing that they can go off that they know that they can feel is your passion and the fact that, you know, you're going to try to figure it out because for the truth is for a lot of early stage businesses, you can look at all the data you want, all the market sizing you want, do all the research that you want. But ultimately, that stuff doesn't matter as much as the people you're betting on. And are they going to figure it out? Do they have the, the wherewithal, the passion, the skills to make it work, regardless of, of how they pivot? And so I think that's probably what sealed the deal for us. Uh, maybe something different for, for other investors. But I would say you did a good job. Good job with that. You know, the, the reason why I asked if there's anything you would have done differently is just sometimes you know, forcing somebody to answer that question is advice in itself for people who are listening, right? Who, who might've thought about doing something one way and then seeing, oh, somebody, somebody regretted that. So I might do it a different way. Yeah. No, to your point about, you know, backing the person, I think that on the, on the other side, on the founder side of that, there's nothing better than having somebody put their, their weight behind you and your passion, Right. That's something that was a, a switch that flipped for me the second time around is is saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to be pitching myself. You know, I'm going to be pitching who I am and what I believe in. And I hope that some people share that vision. And it turns out that a lot of people did. Um, so spending more time on the story and, and allowing them to understand where I came from and just, you know, it's a lot of this is a mental game. Right. As you said, you know, you go through a lot of stress, you you have to make a lot of tough decisions. 
And so being able to, to trust yourself is really important. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad that, that you see it that way as well. Cause you know, it's, it's a financial transaction in the end, right? But it's so much more than that. This is just such a, a very, very interesting um, niche of finance, right? Where you're, you're investing in, in individual teams or individual people. Yeah, makes sense. So talking about teams, you know, you obviously started the business. It was just you and Vish basically out of a dorm room. You came out, moved to Chicago, entered the accelerator. I'm curious you know, what has, what has been the most difficult thing for you as you've built the team now to well over 10 people? Um, and, you know, you've, you've probably had some great hires, you might've had some missteps in the past, you know, so what, what has been easy, easier than you thought it would be in terms of hiring and building a team and what has been, what has been harder? Oh gosh, it's been such a ride, right? Um, I think that right now I feel amazing about our team like we're on a zoom call together and i'm just seeing everybody interact and i think that we've built something really special and it's come down to the same ingredients it's about it's about putting the mission first and it's about uh you know being authentic that's something that i think i struggled with um you know starting out when i first hired somebody you know i'm a child right i don't know how to do any of this i don't know how to manage people i i didn't ever work a um like a corporate job before Trala. So we're just inventing this stuff as we go along. And so I think my, my first couple hires, I definitely struggled with because I really didn't know how to be authentic to myself. And so I couldn't allow them to kind of do their, their best work. But I, I think that's something that we've gotten much better at and uh, have basically just relaxed a lot to say, to, to, to understand what we're looking for. Um, and as the business has matured, that also has made it way easier. I think hiring your first employee is a hundred times harder than hiring your 10th employee mm-hmm. um, because is you're that, not just what you need at that point, right? Right. Is that, is that because, well, the need, yes, but is that because of the, the cost of failure or the risk as well? Where when your team goes from two to three, one bad apple can, can really screw over a team versus 10 to 11 doesn't matter as much? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that's a great point. The, the, the other thing that's interesting right now is with COVID-19, you know, obviously you had a headquarters and an office here in Chicago and everyone was in the office the same day. And, you know, we're going through this, everyone's kind of going through this um, where they're rethinking their need or desire or whatever around offices and headquarters and things like that. How is Trala and how are you thinking about moving forward, how you're going to approach building out your team and offices and culture and things like that? There's a couple things that we've done um, differently that I think have been really positive. So we are a very student-focused company. So we don't have users, we have students. That should kind of tell you how we think about the the people who are paying us. Um, We've started bringing students into our stand-ups, which is something that's very easy to do on Zoom and is almost impossible to do uh, in person. So, you know, just last week we had, uh, somebody from Nova Scotia hop onto a zoom call with our team and they were just there with our team standup and we were all grilling him about his experience. And, uh, it's great for culture, uh, because, you know, no matter how disconnected you may feel on a day-to-day basis, if you're like dealing with a really pesky bug, um, as soon as you talk with somebody who's actually using your product and enjoying it, 
then you feel motivated. So that's that's been something that's really great. You know, I think everybody's figuring it out. So I'm interested to hear kind of what you all are doing mm-hmm. as well, um, because you know this is it's really unprecedented. We didn't know how to how to build culture before COVID, much less during. You know, we're just trying our best. <laughs> yeah, no, I th- I mean I don't think we have an answer yet either. Um, you know, we're we're probably like most other people, pleasantly surprised at how well we've been able to function without all, you know, being in the same place as often as, as we could. But I mean, I, I think no, no matter what happens, I think two things are, are certainly going to be true, even, even when we're looking back on this pandemic. One is we trust remote work and the ability to institute more structure and rigor, like similar to some of the stuff you did to make sure we stay in touch and build that culture. Um, and so I think, you know, it's certainly going to be true that people can kind of live and be where they want to be, where it's more likely that they can do that. Um, but there's going to be new challenges, I think, as well, if if people do take a more liberal approach to to offices. Like, how do you onboard new employees to a team? How do you train in what may be, you know, apprenticeship culture at a company, at a venture firm, whatever? You know, how do you do with it? Because some of that osmosis would just happen without you having to plan for it when everyone's kind of in the hustle and bustle of being in the same place in an office. And you have to be much more um, purposeful about that if everyone's going to be in a different place. So I think we're definitely going to see some professional development challenges across kind of the world, um, you know, putting aside just origin ventures, you know, in, in dealing with that if we do, if teams do start to decide to go remote. But, you know, there's going to be whole new books written on, management and organization and culture coming out of this because of this push to kind of decentralize from headquarters and things like that. So I'm excited to see what the best practices are. And then, you know, we should borrow from from the, the best and brightest who have figured it out. Yeah, I think there's a lot of companies whose culture was predicated around people just drinking after work. And I don't think that's positive. Um, so yeah, probably this is actually going to force some people to be intentional about their culture, which is yeah. Um, going to be more regenerative because we know that, especially in tech, we've got some some major issues with um, uh, gender gaps and, and racial gaps, and maybe people actually, you know, caring about culture is going to uh, going to lead to some positive changes there. Yeah, yep. And um, on the on the topic of team, it's kind of kind of adjacent to it, though. You know, as you've as you've raised money from investors, obviously there have been some larger investors who have become, whether it's board members or board observers or informal advisors or formal advisors to you, that circle is kind of growing over time, right? And you're trying to manage both the demands that may come from an investor base that ask for updates on financials and hiring and blah, blah, blah. Um, but also just you want to learn and get advice and, and ask them for their opinion on topics. So I'm curious how you've thought about managing that and managing your board and your investors over time and what you're planning to do over the next few years. And I understand this is a weird question to ask because I'm one of those investors, but um, I'm more kind of asking for the global structure and framework that that you're kind of using to to think through it. Yeah. Are you specifically referencing when you text me every month asking? <laughs> no, I'm not referencing that. I'm referencing the the larger question of how you look to draw on your investor base to get the most out of them for Trala, but also, you know, keep them informed and, and do your fiduciary responsibility to the company. 
Got it. Yes. Let's, let's not sully ourselves with the details. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've got probably the best investors on earth um, for Trala right now. It's just an extraordinary group of people. And so something I've been training myself to do is whenever I'm dealing with a really difficult problem, instead of just kind of beating my head against the wall, I pick up the phone and I call somebody who knows what they're doing. That's, mm-hmm. that's led to an incredibly uh, positive change in, in our hiring, which is basically what we've been doing over the last couple of months. Um, we've made six fantastic hires, um, you know, all in a row. And I think they're all going to be around for a while, which is something that, you know, our first time around, we made a couple bad hires in a row. Um, and that just slowed us down a lot. So I think already it's, it's paid for itself. Um, and I think in terms of managing them, I mean, there's, there's specific things that we do. Like my investor updates, as you know, are on a Google doc, which is commentable by everybody. You can just look at it anytime. Mm -hmm. I just send out the same link every month. And that's been great for engagement. People are bringing up awesome questions. People are interacting with one another. And I think that's, uh, that's been a smart thing to do. It's pretty intense. So I wouldn't recommend that for every founder. Um, and I really hope that VCs don't try and make that a norm because again, I don't think any VC truly understands, um, the stress that a lot of founders feel when they're writing investor updates. There's just a, a general amount of empathy, which I think there's a lack of in the VC community there. And, and, you know, founders should seek to address that upfront, but, I think, yeah, training myself to, um, uh, to, to call people with questions and then just being really communicative. Like with the, with the Google doc, I'm just, I'm writing a memo every month about how the company is doing. And if you want to interact with that, great. If you don't want to interact with that, that's okay. But most people seem to be responding well to that. Obviously the, to put a pin in this whole subject, the only thing that matters to most of these folks in the end is whether or not we're making a dent in the world, right? If we are having an impact, then all of this makes sense. If you're managing all your investors well, and you know, you're making sure that they feel happy, but the company isn't performing, then all of that goes out the window. It doesn't matter anymore. Yep. You brought up something interesting in there about kind of stress and founder stress, and that's become deservedly so a more important and more addressed, I think, topic in the last few years. And obviously there's a lot of work still to be done, but how do you think about, you know, you and Vision and, you know, it's not just founders, like even key executives at companies can feel the stress, but is there, you know, it sounds like you, you're not immune to this either. And you, you do feel that kind of founder stress and, and the topic of founder mental health seems important to you. You know, how do you deal with that stress? How would you recommend that others, seek out help and deal with it? And are there resources that, you know, founders should seek out, that investors should make available? What what do you think is, you know, the path forward here to make sure that both investors and founders are doing a good job to make sure that the levels of stress are being managed and that, you know, we're not creating unhealthy mental health situations for, for folks? Yeah. I mean, I think there's two parts here. When you're a founder, I mean, I'm incredibly grateful to be in the position that I'm in. I, I could not ask for a more privileged position. And I'm I'm incredibly grateful for the people on my team who are working towards the mission every day. I'm grateful for the, the backers, whether they're financial backers or just emotional backers. It's extraordinary to, to be able to be in this position. 
Um, at the same time, right, founders don't have the privilege of having off days. You have to be on all the time. And I think that's something that most people just don't understand. And it's it's the same sort of thing that that makes celebrities go crazy, right? But on a micro level every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, I, you're asking the question, like, what can what can VCs do to kind of acknowledge that and understand that? Uh, yeah, I think that's that's one important question. Yes. Yeah, I think Oh, you're also asking how I deal with it. Well, let me just say the, the first one first is, I mean, you said the reason that you're backing me or backing founders is because of the person. Right. Well, you got to support that person. Right. That's number one. That's number one. Anything else after that, it's um, it's secondary. So I think it's a lot of people just totally miss that connection. Yeah, that's a good point. Like investors are making a bet on people and then aren't worried about the mental health of those people, which is not very smart from an investment standpoint. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just good for, for the bottom line, right? The same way that we talk about managing culture within a company and making sure your employees are happy, like you better you better hope that your portfolio founders are, are feeling supported because if they're not, it's not going to help. Right. That's that's not going to be helpful at all. So I see that happening um, in with some some friends companies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my investors are really uh, understanding and, and super helpful. Um, but I think it's great that you're bringing this up. Right. I don't think this is a topic that was brought up a couple of years ago. People no. people weren't talking. So Logan, as the uh, Logan LaHive, who is the managing director of Techstars Chicago, when I went through the accelerator, one thing that he did is he made um, founder therapy part of the the programming for Texas. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't heard of that before. Mm-hmm. And I, I hadn't even heard of like people doing therapy before, right? I was like that sort of like sheltered to this this whole phenomenon. And so I think that was super positive. And addressing that up front is really impactful. There's other VC firms that have that 1% pledge to basically add on 1% of their investment to um, uh, specifically for founder coaching and for yep. founder mental health. And yep. that, that, I mean, that seems like, oh gosh, we're, we're such snowflakes these days and we, we can't handle the stress. But I mean, you're investing in a person. So, you know, back that up, right? Otherwise you're truly hypocritical. Yep. Um, in terms of how I deal with it, I, you know, I just lean into all those resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Like the last few years, there's been a, a shift here and we went from, you know, hustle culture being a big thing and people kind of one-upping each other to show how much they were hustling and how little they were sleeping and how much they were working on stuff and stressing themselves out. And I think there's been kind of a backlash against that culture where it's like, that's not healthy physically or mentally or emotionally at all. And in fact, we should be doing the opposite, which is encouraging and supporting and financing responsible growth. Nobody's saying don't work hard. Nobody's saying don't be passionate. Nobody's saying, you know, you, you can only work nine to five and not outside of that. But if you start raising and raising the bar and turning up the temperature and the heat, you know, eventually that pressure is going to get to people. And sometimes it's too late uh, once you realize it. Um, and so it's good to just get the foundations right and be transparent about it. So I mean, you're taking care of yourself. I'm glad that you're you know, within your founder communities. And I, I know you, you talk with and meet with a lot of founders and you're in a lot of groups. So I think it's good that that this is a topic that you guys address. And, you know, we, we are looking at various tools that we can uh, pay for or get discounts for our companies 
whether it's coaching or mental health or free resource, whatever the case may be, there's a lot that I think investors can do to, in your words, you know, back that up and, and back up the fact that they're betting on people. Yeah. And I think for the VCs who are, um, you know, if you're VC, like the founders, like we note that we talk about that. So if you're doing things right, that's noted, that's fair. You're going to get way better deal flow. You're going to get better deals. And if you're not, oh, that's definitely shared as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think VCs are going to find out that the ones who are more empathetic and the ones who are, uh, are trying to build regenerative culture, the same way that companies work, they're going to get a better return. And that's one way to differentiate yourself when normally, you know, the only thing you have to, to offer is a check. So I think, I mean, what an opportunity, man, like what an opportunity venture gets to determine the flow of capital for the next generation of technology and technologists. And then the founders get to hire people. I mean, we're basically creating an economy and we get to determine how to do that. So if you don't recognize the, you know, the upside, the potential upside of investing in regenerative culture, investing in diverse founders and repairing some of the social wrongs of the past, then, you know, you're just passing up on the opportunity of a lifetime. On the flip yeah. side, how much of an incredible impact can you create? You, I mean, you, if you're thinking about IRR and whatnot, like stop and think about the culture that you're building at the same time. Yep, makes sense. Um, so last topic here for you, and then and then we can wrap up, uh, is, you know, where do you see Trala in five years? And, you know, where do you see yourself in five years or, or even beyond? Yeah, so... You know, I, I'll be at Trala in five years. So those two are very much tied together. The The goal is uh, pick up any instrument. The goal is create a new generation of artists. The goal is to create a, a community of artists who are showcasing their creativity. There is a massive, massive, massive gap between where we are currently with education, music education specifically, and where we could be. And I think Trala is one of several companies that are going after this gap. Um, we, you know, I hope that, that any one of them succeeds because this is going to be like a renaissance in the world. It, it's truly going to be something people don't understand what's coming here. That if you're actually able to um, build good music education, the music that we're listening to, the art that we're interacting with, um, it's about to become about a thousand times uh, more complex and, and better, essentially. Like, you know, we think about in classical music, people talk about there's like nine or 10 like composers that all, you know, get brought up. And that's from a pool of maybe like 1 million people total who knew how to play an instrument. So what if that's 4 billion, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. 4,000 times more musicians all creating music at once. And we see, we see a line of sight to that, truly, for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, so the market's going to be way larger because people are just tired of watching Netflix these days, man. Like they, they want to do yeah. something that's regenerative. So I keep bringing up that word, but that's truly how we think about it. So that's what I see in five years is, is the realization of that mission. Got it. Awesome. Well, um, you know, I have no doubt that you 
are going to give you your best shot and get there. And obviously, we're proud to be investors in in the vision that you have. Um, and you know, the the whole team at Trala, uh, I think. Not the you know mimics is not the right word, but I but I think you do a good job instilling that culture and looking for that and seeking it out in the people that you hire, and so it's really great the the culture and vision that you've kind of brought to the to the whole team. So I'm excited to see you and the whole team on that journey over the next x many years. Thank you, and you know when you're a partner at a Shukla Shukla Ventures, um, you know we'll we'll be uh, sending you all the deal flow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, once Trala achieves its vision uh, and does democratize music, I wonder what's next for Sam. You know, who knows what's in the cards? Uh, we'll see what the state of the world is in two weeks, much less five years. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, Sam, thanks a lot for spending time with me today. And, um, you know, have a, have a great rest of your day. Thanks for inviting me on. It's a pleasure, Prashant. Thank you. Awesome. Take care, Sam.